Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, it was called Operation Cross Country and the Focus Sex Trafficking. Led by the FBI, 84 youth, among others, were located, and that includes teens right here in Georgia. But authorities and child advocates will tell you there's still a lot that needs to be done. There are still many challenges in trying to rescue the youngest victims. A conversation with the organization YouthSpark as to why that is still a problem. Plus, playwright, author, and actor Trey Anthony talks about her one-woman show focusing on mental health and embracing self-care. That's coming up in just a moment, and we'll get the latest news regarding another development into the special grand jury investigating the conduct of Donald Trump and allies after the 2020 election. All that's just ahead, but first this. Concerns about the erosion of equal rights for LGBTQ Georgians prompted a group of state lawmakers to hold a news conference today on the steps of the state capitol. Democratic Representative Sam Park was joined by other LGBTQ members of the General Assembly in calling for an amendment to the state's constitution. The reason, as Representative Park cited, to ensure the right to marry and other civil rights protections for all all LGBTQ Georgians will continue. Just last week, Kemp said he personally opposes same-sex marriage. While unfortunate, his homophobic discriminatory position is no surprise. In the state Senate, Kemp voted for a constitutional amendment that would treat myself and hundreds of thousands of LGBTQ Georgians as a second-class citizen and ban same-sex marriage. Now, last month, the Democratic-led U.S. House passed legislation that would give federal protection to same-sex marriages. Its fate is less sure in the Senate, where 60 votes are required to pass most legislation. And the Senate won't take the measure up again until next month, when lawmakers return to Washington from the August recess. And we should know, Closer Look reached out to Governor Brian Kemp's office for a response. We did through a spokesperson, Katie Byrd, who said, quote, Governor Kemp's personal position on same-sex marriage has not changed, but this issue has been settled by the U.S. Supreme Court. For more context, please see below the excerpts from the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, which we all know. And if you really want to know that, you can just Google Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. She didn't say that. I'm just telling you what you need to do. Uh, A new ordinance ordinance regulating short-term rental units in the city of Atlanta is set to take effect in two weeks. Airbnb says they're working closely with property owners and the city to ensure hosts will be able to continue benefiting from Atlanta's popularity as a getaway destination. Christopher Austin has more. According to the company, more than a million visitors have stayed in Georgia Airbnbs through the first half of 2022. During that period, hosts on the platform earned an average of $7,000 each, almost double what they earned during the same period in 2019. Catherine Powell is Airbnb's global head of hosting. Powell says 40% of hosts surveyed in Atlanta say the money earned from hosting helped them remain in their home. 
You can be incredibly flexible in how you host, but it is a chance to add important incremental income to help you enjoy and, and live in, at a time where disposable incomes are getting squeezed. Atlanta's new ordinance limits hosts to two short-term rental units and one must be their primary residence. You also must be a resident of Atlanta and pay $150 annually for a permit. Powell says the company is taking steps to make sure hosts can understand and comply with the regulations. Airbnb recently launched a training program through the Russell Innovation Center for Entrepreneurs for property owners interested in becoming hosts. We've made sure that we have um, given hosts the information that we need. We've sent them, we've had webinars on this, we'll send them emails on it, and we'll also ensure that they can find information on registering in the app. The Atlanta ordinance also includes a measure to crack down on party houses, which Airbnb has banned from its platform. Powell says a new feature in the app will help the company identify high-risk rentals before parties occur. An example of this might be if we see somebody uh, maybe somebody who's under 25 years old is booking an entire home not far from where they live, and maybe they're booking it for one night only. That will trigger a flag for us, and we'll go and investigate further as to, you know, who is this guest. Atlanta's short-term rental law is set to take effect September 6th. Christopher Alston, WABE News. And starting today, voters can request an application for an absentee ballot for the November elections. According to the Georgia Secretary of State Office, it's easy to do. Voters must, quote, complete the application and mail or email an image of it to their county election office and make sure you get it back to your county by 7 p.m. on the day of the election in order for it to be counted, close quote. Now, all the requirements and instructions can be found on the Georgia Secretary of State's website. And a reminder, under the 2021 controversial Georgia law, there are new ID requirements for requesting an absentee ballot. Now, as we told you before, there's another legal twist related to the special grand jury investigating the actions of Donald Trump and allies related to the Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. Now, our WABE politics team has been very busy keeping up with all the legal maneuvering and rulings. So let's check in with one of them. Raul Bali, welcome. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've been drowning in, yeah. in legal opinions and uh, I can hardly wait. Uh, we have a federal system where where we look in and look at documents and we get charged for that. Uh, I'm not looking forward to that bill when whenever uh, management sees that. Well, as long as you don't take it out the closer look budget, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> we need that for pizza and donuts. <laughs> as I eat my onion rings here at the state capitol. Oh, yes. Raleigh, let's back up a little. Let's, let's get the latest because it involves... Uh, South Carolina's uh, Lindsey Graham. What's the latest here? First, he was ordered he had to. Now there's been another ruling. Where are we with this? So his lawyers are continuing to fight the subpoena to appear in front of the Fulton County Special Grand Jury that's investigating, you know, those efforts to overturn Georgia's presidential election results in 2020. Mm -hmm. He was supposed to testify tomorrow, Tuesday. But yesterday, on a Sunday morning, I mean, that's, you know... You can't even believe that, that you'd get a filing on a, on a Sunday morning. A federal court delayed that. And now here's what it comes down to. And here's the key question that's the, the judge is asking lawyers to file briefs on the following question. Mm -hmm. Was Senator Graham, what he did in the days and weeks after the 2020 elections, fall under his responsibilities as a U.S. senator? Mm -hmm. That's what this all comes down to. You know, the phone calls that Graham made to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and his staff looking into, you know, auditing mail-in ballots and, and possibly throwing some out over mismatched signatures. This is what it really comes down to. 
you know, did what did he do that falls under his responsibilities as senator? And not, you know, when, and when we were in the federal hearing last month, prosecutors said, "Look, this has nothing to do with his job as senator." Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it, it's very clear. Prosecutors really, really are interested in talking to him. Graham is an important figure. Mm -hmm. You know, was there a level of coordination between Lindsey Graham? and the campaign of former President Donald Trump. That's what, those are the two key questions. Was this his job as Senator? And what was the coordination with the former president's campaign? And those two questions, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals actually wants the, wants the local district court to decide that because they sent it back, right? Yeah, that's, it's all, this, it's, it's bouncing between different courts right now, but it really is. It's really the federal, in this case, it's the federal courts that are trying to solve because it's the federal issue of a U.S. senator mm -hmm. being asked to testify here in Georgia. Whereas, for example, you know, we're going to talk about Governor Kemp. His issues right now are being discussed in state court. Mm -hmm. Let's for our listeners who may not be familiar, let's back up and let's go over. It's, it's like a game. You know, it's like, let's go over who has already testified, who mm -hmm. challenged, who lost and who won. So who do we know that's already, I guess, appeared before the grand jury? We know Secretary of State Raffensperger has mm -hmm. uh, some of his key members of his staff. Uh, House Speaker David Ralston has. Of course, last week we had uh, Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. uh, I was outside of the court for that for that media circus. Um, you know, so those are some of the key names. Uh, obviously, some smaller names have, have also testified. The people we're still looking ahead to. You know, the, to me, the biggest surprise last week mm -hmm. was. You know, we had done reporting that Governor Kemp was scheduled to testify July 25th, mm -hmm. but at no point could we ever say he actually had testified because we were never able to confirm that. So then last week, boom, surprise, comes a filing of the governor never testified. There was this whole issue between the prosecutor's office and the governor's office. And you're like, wow, the governor really didn't uh, didn't really testify in front of the uh, Fulton County Grand Jury. So. Obviously, the governor is a big name. Mm -hmm. um, you've got the, the the electors, the Republican electors. Mm -hmm. um, I do not know if any have testified yet. I know some are appealing. Uh, you know, you've obviously got Burt Jones, who has been able to get Fonnie Willis disqualified mm -hmm. because of her actions being involved with the fundraiser with her, with his Democratic opponent. So we but we don't know about the other 15 whether they have uh, testified or not. So those are some of the key figures. And, of course, the biggest name, you know, f uh, former President Trump, whether he will A, be called, and B, what will he do? Now, Raul, is it true that with Rudy Giuliani, he was there from, like, 9 in the morning to late about afternoon? Three. About 3 o'clock. Wow. But that i think the key thing for people is you can't infer what that means mm -hmm. because one of two things could have happened in that courtroom he could have you know claimed privilege attorney client uh, attorney client privilege mm -hmm. or he could have claimed the fifth now in in my conversations not with these prosecutors but with others even if the person's going to take the fifth, you ask the question, you ask all of your questions mm -hmm. and make them take the fifth. So we don't know. Again, we don't know what happened in the court. You know, Rudy Giuliani was asked in New York when he got back to New York, hey, what did, did you say anything? What did you? And he didn't say anything. So we don't know what happened in those six hours. And you really can't guess what happened in those six hours, whether he was asked 300 questions and mm -hmm. took the fifth, 
answered some questions or claim privilege. Raul, any idea of what you're hearing from folks and when all this could be wrapped up? And the before best, November 8th. You know what? I, the most important tea leaves that we got was from the Burt Jones hearing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that was when Judge McBurney, who is overseeing, Judge Robert McBurney, who is overseeing this grand jury, um, he, he hinted that, hey, we are kind of getting to the end of the road. But it is very clear that Judge McBurney does not want this to affect the mm -hmm. elections process. Even if this report from the grand jury gets done, mm -hmm. I do not see it being released before the election. Mm. You hear that in the voice of the judge. He's just like, he, he doesn't want that to happen. Are we coming near the end? You know, Paige paid our legal analysts. Like, mm -hmm. look, when you start bringing in targets, mm -hmm. you're, you know, when you go from witnesses to targets, you are starting to go toward the end. So many clues are we're going toward the end. But even if we do reach the end before Election Day, there's a possibility that we don't don't see the report before Election Day. And more importantly, you know, Governor Kemp has a hearing this Thursday. His lawyers have a hearing about delaying his testimony. If he gets his testimony delayed till after the election, then obviously, mm -hmm. the, you know, the report's not going to be done before Election oh, Day. Wow. Uh, speaking of elections, uh, what is going on with the PSC? First, there was a candidate that was not on it, then sued to be back on the ballot. Now it's not going to. What's happening with this? Bottom line, when voters <laughs> okay, go, like when voters, there's been so much ping ponging on this, both on the issues around Patty Durant, who, who was running for District 2, and the issues around does the way we elect public service commissioners in the state of Georgia violate the Voting Rights Act? Mm -hmm. What it comes down to is we will not have elections. You and I, when we go vote, will not have public service commission on the ballot. It won't be there. There was a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. And, and basically what Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, said, look, we're too close to the elections. You know, you know ballots are scheduled to be start printing today. Sure. And as you mentioned in your newscast, today's the day we start requesting absentee ballots. Mm -hmm. It comes, what it really comes down to is it's too close to the election mm. to keep taking it on and off the ballot, you know. Well, let's and let's keep throw, let's mm -hmm. remind our listeners how we even got to all of this because it, this involves redistricting and someone moving, mm -hmm. you know, folks move. Yep. So there are two cases, okay, that, and that's where also some of this conversation comes from. So there's the one case involving Patty Durant. Patty Durant was running for District 2. Mm -hmm. And then redistricting, District 2 of the Public Service Commission, currently held by Tim Eccles, mm -hmm. who's a Republican. She's a Democrat. Um, and then redistricting happens. She gets drawn out of her Peachtree Corners mm -hmm. um, district. And so basically she's out of the race. Then qualifying comes, and she still qualifies for that race, mm -hmm. even though she's not eligible. Now, she did go ahead and move into the new District 2 for Public Service Commission. She moved over to Conyers, but technically she was ineligible when she qualified. The judge basically said, what you all did was unconstitutional, mm -hmm. okay? Plain and simple, what you did was wrong. I'm putting her back on the ballot. So that's one case. The other case involves the way Public Service Commissioners are elected. Mm -hmm. Public Service Commissioners have to come from one of five districts. They have to live in that district, like Patty Durant living in her district, but they're elected by all Georgians. Mm -hmm. Here's the main question. 
Does that dilute the power of black voters in Georgia to pick the candidate of their choice? That's the key question here. You know, if if you have a district that, you know, is Fulton County, DeKalb County and Clayton County, well, obviously that's going to elect a Democrat and, and mm -hmm. most likely an African, a, a black candidate. But since it's elected statewide, then the question is, is, is are you diluting African-American right. voters? So the judge made that ruling saying, yep, it does violate the Voting Rights Act. Okay, but then the appeals keep happening and now we're too close to the election. Mm -hmm. In this case, unlike what's going on with the food and water ban, what's happening in this case, the judges, including the U.S. Supreme Court, said don't let the election happen. Okay, so and there's so much more to that. I wish we had time, but there I want to get I, I want to get to the food and water ban because the judge upheld and we should understand it. It's not that you you can't offer food and water to folks in line. It's within a certain amount of distance, correct? Exactly. So and this is, again, one of those cases. This only will affect November. They are going to still be this case will continue through the courts to argue the merits, both of overall the issues around uh, Senate Bill 202, but specifically this issue as well. Right now, if Rose and Raul walked up to a polling place, we could not uh, go within 150 feet of the campaign area, of, of the polling location, mm -hmm. to give water or food to people in line, or within 25 feet, once, that, once a line passes 150 feet of a polling line, then within 25 feet of the voting line. That's where water and food can't be given by a private individual. Mm. Um, the argument the argument being, this is not about influencing the vote. No one here, the argument is not being made by those who are suing that this is about allowing people to influence someone. This is about Rose and Raul helping, and I'm, I'm obviously not saying me, I'm, anybody allowing, giving food and water to help people stay in line when they're in a long line. Gotcha. Okay, because it's illegal right now for, for someone to hand me a bottle of water and say, hey, I want you to vote for Rose Scott. Of course. So that's illegal. That hasn't changed. And that has it's never happened, folks, just letting you know. Uh, okay, Raul, what might <laughs> this look like on election day? So um, I, that's another quote. You know, we talk about how many times we're in court. I was, I was in court for that one, and, and um, the person who argued it was the ACLU's Davin Rossborough, and, and I caught up with him. Um, right after the decision. And and he kind of really was able to explain this is what Election Day in Georgia is going to look like when it comes to the food and water issue. A group could set up a table that's more than 150 feet from the polling place and more than 25 feet from any voter. But outside of that um, or outside of a polling official deciding to provide water to voters, providing food and water is, is, is banned at the polling place. Mm. That's it. And here's the interesting thing. He believes. It says based food and on, water. It says nothing about Gatorade. <laughs> Just letting folks know that. I'm going to get people arrested. <laughs> I like, I like wild. Oh, wait. I like wild cherry Powerade in case you wanted to know. Right. Um, the, the key thing he took away, and, and you can see it in the ruling, is the issue of giving water and food once the line passes 150 feet. He believes it's going to overturn. And when you look at the language the judge put in, mm -hmm. it looks like that that portion of the law could be overturned. But the judge was uncomfortable making the decision because it was so close to the elections. Wow. 
Whew, a lot. WABE politics reporter Raul Bali. As always, we appreciate you taking the time. Raul, I don't know how you all do it, you and Sam Greenglass. <laughs> oh, we get, make clear, we get great help. We have Susanna Capaluda, who's mm-hmm. our editor. We have our coworkers like Jess Mador, and we have Emma Hurd over at Axios. We have so many people who help us. It's not just us two. All right, we appreciate it too. Thanks a bunch. I appreciate it. Sounds good. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, Closer Look continues. I'm Rose Scott. When Shirley Franklin was mayor of Atlanta, along with other advocates and a judge, together they began pushing for changes to how youth were being criminalized in the legal system. Now, these were youth that were sexually exploited. And it was a movement that began to toughen penalties for those considered traffickers. Back then, I think it was 2005, 2006, Franklin voiced and penned the following. Dear John, You have been abusing our kids, prostituting them, and throwing them onto the street. As mayor of Atlanta, I have promised to listen to people. Kids are no exception. When you buy sex from our kids, you hurt them, you hurt our families, and you hurt our city. No more, not in my city. Sincerely, Shirley Franklin. I actually was in 2007. Now, since then, there have been tougher sentencing laws and collaborative efforts to provide resources for sex trafficking survivors. And the recent FBI nationwide operation cross country, which helped 84 youth that were located, and that includes teens here in Georgia. But authorities and many child advocates say there are still many challenges in trying to even rescue the youngest victims. I'm joined now by Jennifer Swain, executive director of YouthSpark and a, a Eliza Riak, who's currently working with the organization, and we'll hear more about what areas she's working with. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Jennifer, I'll start with you covering this. I remember back in 2007, 2008, when your organization was under another name, you all have been among so many other organizations trying to combat this. And we keep hearing about these operations, and and you're helping and rescuing uh, survivors. But when you and I talked last week, you told me there's still a barrier, Rose, and that is how youth are even labeled in the system that sometimes you don't know they're missing. So how can you find someone if you don't know they're missing? Take that further for our listeners. Um, Absolutely. I think one thing that we have a very large movement here in Georgia around how we recover young people, how we identify victims. And due to our Youth Services Center being on the front lines in inside of the Fulton County Juvenile Court, we've really developed our partnership over the past two years with their Children in Need of Services Department to ensure every young person that's labeled missing or on the run comes across our desk. And we're learning that we need to widen that safety net for that group as well. So that, that didn't always occur. 
because if, if a youth was considered a runaway or missing, they there was no connection to be made. Well, perhaps this is a an individual that might be caught up in being sexually exploited. Absolutely. And we know from our past research with Georgia State University on the Atlanta Youth Count that over the 3,300 uh, missing and runaway youth on any given fall night in the metro area, we know that half of those young people have been either vulnerable or approached by a trafficker. 3,300. Mm-hmm. And this is the data that you all have been able to to collect with, with this research with Georgia State. 3,300 youth on any given night in the Atlanta region. In the metro area. Eliza, you've been working with in this space for so long. None of this is lost on you. And the and in the years past, and I know I've had conversations with folks, even fellow journalists, who argue, well, we need the data to support this. We need the data so that people know that these numbers aren't just being in, inflated for t- to get more money or to get more resources. Your reaction to when you and you know about this, thirty three hundred youth, thirty three hundred youth, and you know federally there are numbers that we have like of those youth, we know that one in six kids who run away and are reported missing to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children as missing have been identified as likely victims of sex trafficking. And so we know that those kids that are already vulnerable because of this running away behavior are likely to be targeted by traffickers. Um, So I think it's, but I think getting to hard data numbers is really challenging because what about those kids who aren't reported missing? Mm -hmm. There's so many different names to this crime. There's so many different ways we react. And quite honestly, the number one reason that kids aren't getting access to these services is because they're just simply not identified. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really careful to remember that this data is representative of young people and how we talk about it doesn't necessarily always frame the issue. Let me stay with you for a moment, then I'll go back over to Jennifer. Then where do we begin? Is it something as simple as when a, a youth is identified or reported as missing or a runaway, they go into a system and then you all have access or somehow that youth shows up in your your cycle as well and then you all can be on the lookout is that basically what we need to do here? I think that's I mean that's part of what I've come aboard with you spark helping the team try to figure out because at this point I think when we talk about running away behavior it's that same kind of history from so long ago where we're using the word runaway as a label for a young person mm-hmm. as opposed to thinking what is making this child want to run away or feel they aren't safe at home. You know, we know that if a kid is running away frequently or for long periods of time, the likelihood is that they're running from something or to something. So the more that we can really reaffirm to folks that these kids, when they run away, they are not safe, Mm -hmm. that we need to put a response in place, I think that's going to be a game changer. Jennifer, Eliza called it a game changer. What are you all hoping in with your organization? You've been able to make some 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 strides in this, in the collaborations with local law enforcement and, and other organizations here. Is this the first priority, the first metric, and then to obviously in identifying, but then when your organization comes in, what do you all do? I think for us, excuse me, really understanding that we understand the lived experiences through our direct services work. We've been doing that at USPARC for 20 years now. Recognizing that we are identifying yet another gap in Georgia's response is clear. We met this morning with Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens, and we really want to reinforce that having the opportunity to pull this part of the the abuse out and respond to it is an early intervention proactive response and not reactive. 
So what did the mayor, what was his response? Does this also mean that you all have to have a better collaboration with, say, for example, Atlanta, the Atlanta Police Department? And they, do they have a, a sex crimes against children department, so to speak? Yes, they actually have a very strong uh, special victims unit, and our direct services team works hand-in-hand with them, but we recognize that there's a level of coordination that's missing. And our goal with uh, identifying this work is to create Atlanta's first youth recovery unit under our Youth Services Center, and that goes into direct alignment with the mayor's One Safe City plan, and he's pledged to work with us. So this is... Brown, some breaking news here. Absolutely. So the mayor of the city of Atlanta, you all are going to partner and, and create this. How how big is that? Do other cities have that? Well, uh, as, a, as a collaborative working with Eliza, um, we've been contracting with her for the past four months to really find out what models are out there. And we realize that it's truly groundbreaking. No, no models, Eliza? I think there are models related to... Um, child sex trafficking and mm-hmm. CSEC response. And there are models for serving youth who are unhoused. But as far as actually thinking about meeting the response to youth who are running away and disconnected, I've been unable to identify, I've reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, as well as different contexts. I think this is the first of its kind to really, again, get into these root causes of not only trafficking, but mm-hmm. all sorts of at-risk. We know that children on the USPARC caseload, that while they're running away, they've experienced extreme violence, mm-hmm. rape, gang involvement, um, you, you name it. And so we want to make sure that, again, we're thinking, how do we address these root causes? Because that runaway behavior is indicative of a challenge. So when you've identified the root causes and then comes the next phase, which is the road to recovery, which is not easy. Yes. It is a journey. And, and Jennifer, we worked with Youth Spark when it was a future, not a past, mm-hmm. some years ago with my colleague Dennis O'Hara in a documentary that we talked that we did. It is a long road, and then this state has come a long way, though. I want to be fair in terms mm-hmm. of resources. It took it took a lot, it, a lot of legislative work, a lot of folks truly understanding the problem here. When we talk about resources and and moving from victim to survivor, what is that like? What what do you want listeners to know? And I think what's really important is addressing the issues and the indicators of runaway. It's not just about recovering youth. We recognize for young people that are experiencing this exploitation and this abuse that recovery by the way that we talk about it is not the same thing. And so we want to prioritize identifying and addressing the root causes of this because I want you to think about this, Rose. When you label someone as a runaway... No one really looks for them. And what we figured out is although we've advocated, we brought people to the table, we have currently 17 missing youth on our caseload right now, and only two of them were reported properly, which allows us to then, as a small nonprofit, partner with the national organization like National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That will allow us to ensure the details that my team has on the ground gets to not only APD through an email, but it gets to the entire coordinated response. And we're working with FBI, GBI, and local law enforcement. And if I could just follow up to mm-hmm. that, I think, you know, a word that you use too, and, and we are very into semantics in this field, um, I, I don't think we would say the word rescue with Operation Cross Country or any of these pieces. I think the idea that what you spark as a community-based organization can do is start connecting those dots and actually, actually saying, okay, what is it that we can do to um, to begin that healing process mm-hmm. and make you feel safe again? And until we're able to say that, just finding that kid isn't going to be the beginning of a rescue. It's going to be starting the journey. Any idea 
have you all looked at the data that it reveals how much time it may take from when a youth is reported missing comes into the youth spark portal and then you're able to find this this youth What's really important is because we're based on the front lines in juvenile court, we can create a plan, and that's going to be critical for our new recovery unit, creating the plan with the family so that the moment the child is returned, we can work with our statewide system of care, our partners. We know that uh, First Lady Marty Kemp has definitely created a residential and assessment response for them. So it's not about waiting to the moment that they are found again. It's about preparing the family and the system to get that child into care as quickly as possible. I remember covering this. There was an issue about, and this is what advocates used to say, and Jennifer, you know this. They used to say, Rosa, there's just not enough beds. There's just not enough space to even begin the process for the, for the youth. Where are we now in 2022? We are still standing behind that community-based models are where we need to prioritize right now, especially for youth who are missing and on the run. And we need to prioritize more nonprofits on the ground who interface with children every day, as well as the school system, to be a part of the collective response. Because you're right, taking children out and rescuing them, air quotes, Mm -hmm. into a place and then we send them back Back into the very neighborhood. We have to equip every neighborhood with a community-based response. And there's a nonprofit in every neighborhood that can do exactly the work that we're doing. And and we're about to share that information. That's a lot. A community-based model in every neighborhood. And when you just think about Atlanta and the the 12 counties, 13, 13 counties, whatever, that make up this region, that's a lot. How do we do it? Well, I think, you know, the other piece is because we still we still need beds. What we're learning is beds weren't the answer for every child. Mm-hmm. And so I think having a community based organization allows us to start the resources at the individual level. Success. It's hard to measure how long it takes because what success looks like and what safety looks like is going to look different from for every kid. So um, it's going to take money. It's going to take people willing to listen to children, and it's going to be people, you know, I think that um, willing to recognize that there isn't a silver bullet solution, but that these kids deserve to be protected. Um, And so it's going to us continuing to use our data and experience to uh, make the shout out call to say, let's get on board and make this a priority. As we're going to wrap up, and Jennifer, I just want to note this. I remember in starting to cover this, it was part of my, quote, beat back in 2007 2008 mm-hmm. and you at the time you were you were just you used to be a journalist yeah just and stepping into this role and stepping into and now you're executive director you've seen so much happen um what is your hope where we will be as a state in combating this in another let's say two two to five years well, I think, you know, with my 14-year journey here in this space, um, I think this is the hope, what we're having this conversation today. Even in you and your work and your coverage, you're coming at this with an entirely different angle. So that means you identify the gaps. And I think as we continue to do that, we are right where we need to be. Again, we have a mayor with a new One Safe City plan that's going to help connect our leaders as well as our child welfare systems. Mm-hmm. So I think in two to five years, what our ultimate goal will be is to to ensure that we have a coordinated response that leaves no child outside of it because it will then ensure no matter where you are on that continuum, you're getting the intervention. Eliza, I'll give you the last word. Two to five years, what do you hope we are as a state with this? Um, I like that idea of a community in every spot. I like the idea of shifting, run away from a blaming uh, level, and I like the idea of 
you know, you spark being four times our size because so many people are ready to build the response that we need to have happen. All right. Eliza Riak, Jennifer Swain, both with Youth Spark. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. Thank you for what you all do to help so many youth out there and others. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, you all have heard me say so many times, it's not always about the destination, but the journey. And for Trey Anthony, her journey has been filled with some great accomplishments, a lot of laughs, and some heartbreak and pain. She's a British-Canadian four-time NAACP award-winning playwright and actress. And peep this, the first African-Canadian woman with a show on primetime Canadian Network when The Kink in My Hair was adapted into a highly rated sitcom. Now, but for the last couple of years, Trey Anthony will tell you she's been on a different journey, crafting a different kind of project based on her first book, Black Girl in Love with Herself. And later this week, the tour, the same title, stops in Atlanta. So let's talk about how all this came together. We'll call this Two Black Girls Talking. Trey Anthony, welcome. <laughs> Hi, Rose. Thank you so much for having me. I love that. Two Black Girls Talking. There we yes. go. Some folks just turned off the radio, but that's okay. That's their issue, not mine. <laughs> but I think a lot of folks are hanging out. Let's begin here, Trey, because the, the description for a black girl in love with herself reads this, and I'm quoting. Quote, this dynamic tour is more than a book tour. It promises healing, laughter, and love with a little bit of ratchet. Close quote. Yeah. Now, I, now, I love me some ratchet every now and Trey. Every now and then, I love some ratchetness. <laughs> Oh, gosh, just a little bit, just a little just bit. A little bit. Uh, but I think it's more down to the honesty and the candid talk mm -hmm. and just the transparency and the vulnerability that you will definitely find in this show. Let's then go back a bit, because, Trey, I want to I want you to describe your state of mental health, say, two years ago. Well, Rose, to be really honest, I think I was in a big, huge denial about the state of my mental health. Mm -hmm. um, I had found myself, um, I was practically nearly homeless. Um, I had um, a two-week-old baby that I had just brought home. My relationship of five years had abruptly just blown up in my face, and we were about to go into a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And when I say I was in denial, I think because I just switched to this role that I was so used to of being like, okay, things need to get done. And I have this little baby counting on me and I had a book deal that I had to go through and I had to find housing and I had to figure out all my financing around the pandemic. And I knew that I was feeling overwhelmed. I knew that I was feeling stress. I knew that I was crying all of the time. I knew that there were a lot of dark thoughts going through my head, but I still was in denial. And to be quite frank, it wasn't until I was actually interviewing a psychologist for the book, Black Girl in Love with Herself. Mm -hmm. She said to me, by the time Black women actually go and seek help for their mental health, usually our symptoms are 10 times worse than our white counterparts. And so I was like, okay, well, can you list to me like some things and warning signs that women should look for, mm -hmm. right? To maybe point at the um, depression, right? Mm -hmm. And as she was listing them, if she listed 10, I had 14 out of the 10. Mm -hmm. And it was only then there was this light bulb moment in my brain that said, 
this is more than you dealing with heartbreak and a traumatic breakup. You are actually in a severe depression. What did you do, Trey? So right away, as I got off the phone, I remember I ran downstairs to my mom. I have a Jamaican mom at home, Rose, right? And I remember running downstairs and I talk about this in the book, Black Girl in Love with Herself. And I said, mom, um, I think I'm depressed. Mm. And my mother, without missing a beat, she turned around to me and she said, of course you're depressed. Everybody knows that, but you'll get over it. Have some tea. And that's how my family deals with everything. It's mm -hmm. either tea and denial. And I knew it was way more than that. And I absolutely just jumped online and I looked up some help and I went to go and see a therapist. And it was an online um, therapist at that time because everybody was still in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And when I went to see him um, and I did the Zoom call, he said to me, you are going through a breakup. You are in a pandemic. You have moved across state. You have a brand new baby at home. You are concerned about your finances. He said, just one of these things would cause some anxiety. You are going through five of these things at the same time. And you didn't seek help before this. And he said, why? And I said, because I thought I could handle it. And because that's what I do. I'm glad you said that because there is this and we always we, we, we've heard it from our our moms and our grandmothers and, you know, black women and, and they're so mm -hmm. resilient and, and we just carry this burden and we, and we, we struggle through it. And, and I know I grew up hearing that and seeing mm -hmm. that with women mm -hmm. in my family and I'm yeah. called upon to do that, but let's be really clear. Doggone it. We don't need to have some burdens. <laughs> People think that yeah. we just going to get through it as black women. Nobody wants yeah. to be burdened with anything, but yes. this whole notion that as black women, this is just what we do. This is That's just what cool. we do. And I've heard you say in past interviews, that has to stop. We have to stop yeah. with this, oh, it's just, I'm just going to deal with it and just carry this burden. But you're saying no. And I agree with you on this. Yeah. No, you don't, you don't just take the burden. You do something about it. You seek help if you can. Exactly. And I think, Rose, one of the things that I really learned in this process of seeking help and absolutely just saying I need help is that I come from a group of women, my mother, my grandmother. I remember when I was going through all of this, I said to my mom, I don't think I can handle this. And my mom said to me, remember your grandmother, remember me, we had it way worse. And I think this is what has mm -hmm. happened to a lot of black women. We see those examples of our mothers and grandmothers having it quote unquote way worse. And we see what they have done. They haven't absolutely survived. What they have done is just, it's been an act of just being resilient mm -hmm. and getting by. And that unhealed trauma is then played out in various cycles through generational trauma. And for me, funny enough, having my son was when I said, this stops here. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm not going to try and survive. I'm not going to try and get by. What I'm going to do is I'm going to heal. And I really want to also acknowledge I was the first one in my family who had the education to be able to think about this. Mm -hmm. I had the resources available to me. And I also had the time because we were actually in a pandemic. And so all of those things allowed me to actually take the time to look at this trauma 
and do the healing that was necessary, a luxury that wasn't afforded to so many black women in my family. Absolutely, and mine as well. And I know so many people out there can definitely, they definitely can identify with that. And so, Trey, you've taken all of this, and mm-hmm. it, it's it's in a one-woman show as well as a book, and I got the book here. You can see it. And, you're, 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 you know, look, I talked about this with Alice Walker in terms of her journals being released. There is a, 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 a vulnerability here that you are putting out there for everyone else because perhaps it will help them. Did at any point, with as you were crafting this one-woman show, that you say, well, maybe I shouldn't reveal too much of that to the audience. But, no, you didn't hold anything back. They're going to see it all as much yeah. as we can. <laughs> course. You know what, Rose, if there's one thing that I've learned in my journey, and it's about my work, and I think that is why in the past people have been drawn to my work um, around the kink in my hair, um, how Black mothers say I love you, is that I bring you along that journey of what healing looks for me, right? And for me, it's around the laughter in the, those moments. It's in the tears. It's in that vulnerability. It's in the lessons. It's in that moment when I'm on the bathroom floor crying. And I want to create safe spaces for Black women. And I realize the only way I'm able to create those safe spaces, if I myself are is this open and transparent, because I know for so many of us who are caught up looking at the curated versions of people's lives on Facebook and Instagram, Mm -hmm. You're sitting there going, oh, my gosh, my life doesn't look like that. And so for me, it was about taking off the mask and taking off the curated versions and saying, here's some truth. And sometimes this truth can be real ugly. Sometimes this truth can be real comical. And these are some of the things I did because I didn't love myself enough. And these are some of the things I did because I was dying for somebody to say they love me. Right. And I think women relate to that. Are you comfortable in sharing where you are now with your mental health and what you've been doing? Great question, Rose. Um, I always say to people around my mental health is I'm currently, you know, I get up every single day. I exercise, I journal, I meditate. I still take medication for my mental health. And all of these things make sure that I am well, that I'm a well person for myself, a well mother, a well sister, you know, and all of these things have helped me. For other women, it may look different, but what I really wanted to remove was the stigma mm-hmm. around medication, especially in the Black community, because I've had so many people when I finally went public about taking medication for depression, they were like, you, Trey Anthony, you seem to have it all. You're always so funny. You're also bubbly. You always, and it looks really great and you're a great mom. And I said, I'm all of those things, but I also take my damn medication, right? (laughs) So I can be those things. And I think that's really important that we need to know that there is no shame in that. And we need to start having conversations around that, especially in the black community. I love this part in the book because you mentioned meditation. I'm going to quote you here. I did not jump on the meditation bandwagon willingly. It was a bit woo-woo for me. I wasn't completely sold on the idea that all I need to do was light a candle, hold hands in a circle with a couple of barefoot blonde women in Lululemon Lululemon pants, breathe, and everything will be well in my life. Yes. (laughs) It took you a while to get to the meditation tray. At at the end of the day, I'm black. I'm also Jamaican, right? (laughs) those things like it's as simple as that like my mother to this day like she'll call me and she goes oh what you doing meditating <laughs> you're <laughs> lighting candles <laughs> I like candles. it wasn't my thing 
But I also am a person that I look at women who I admire and successful women. And when I was seeing people like Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, Halle Berry, you know, Shonda Rhimes, all of these women talk about having a built-in meditation practice. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was just like, there has to be something in that. And I started and it was something like, you know, I went from five minutes to 10 minutes to 15 minutes. Now I try and meditate 30 minutes a day. But I wasn't one of those people who were like, oh, yeah, sign me up for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Listen, I started yoga during the pandemic and I was like, ah, I don't know if I yeah. can do this. And it was virtual. And I was like, OK, no one can see me struggling here at the time. No one yeah. but my cats. But oh, wow, the pandemic has done wonders for a lot of people. We're doing things a that we never thought we would do. Uh, exactly. Trey, you're coming to this one woman show is coming to Atlanta this week. It's it's going to be in Austell, Georgia. Black girl in love with herself. Uh, what has this been doing for you personally on this tour as you meet and talk with other women who are probably coming up to you saying thank you so much for this? What it has really done for me, Rose, is see that I am walking in my purpose and intention and how we need as Black women to heal collectively, to know that we have sisters who are supporting us, that we have a space that is vulnerable, and that we are not alone. Because I think so much of us get caught up in the stigma of the strong Black woman holding it together, holding everybody down, not crying, not asking for help. And for me, this is what this tour has been able to do for women, is give us that safe space to laugh, to cry, to have candid conversations and say, I'm not in this by myself. And I think a lot of us, you know, are dealing with so many things and we're dealing with them in isolation. And this actually gives voice to our mm -hmm. experience, an authentic and candid voice to say, sis, you're not alone. You know what? I'm going to take the time to just to give a shout out to some sisters. They know who they are. Gigi, Gail, Simone, <laughs> Trina. Shanti, so many others, yeah. Lisa B, you know, our sisters, mm. we need them. We need you. And and they helped me out throughout this last few years. It's been rough. Trey Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time. Wonderful conversation again. The Black Girl in Love With Herself comes to the Atlanta area this Thursday in Austell. We'll have a link for more information. Thank you so much, Trey Anthony. Good conversation. How's that little boy of yours? Oh, he is doing great. He's excited to meet his Auntie Rose. So he'll be <laughs> okay. there at the show. <laughs> so don't, you don't, guys all come out. All, all these right, virtual. Don't, don't be thinking I'm a babysit now. We, you know. <laughs> Thanks, Trey. And support, girl. And support. <laughs> okay. Take care, Rose. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. I'm everyone's auntie. I love it. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. Lennox Johnson is our Closer Look summer intern. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. 
New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at wabe.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.